this is Dr. Susan Spratt. I'm an endocrinologist at Duke Health and Duke Well. We're starting something new here at Duke Well, Healthy Bites, a podcast intended for healthcare providers to quickly learn new information on health topics. I'll focus on diabetes and endocrinology, starting with all the new and old diabetes therapies available for your patients. I'll be interviewing diabetes experts from around the state. Please join us for Healthy Bites. This is Dr. Susan Spratt. Today, we're talking about metformin, the guidelines on when to prescribe it, and at what level of kidney function, or should I say dysfunction, should it be stopped. In a few minutes, I will be talking to Dr. Matt Crowley about metformin. As you know, it's been the paradigm in diabetes care that at the onset of diabetes, one should prescribe metformin and recommend lifestyle changes. It's no longer just lifestyle changes and return in three or six months for an A1C check. Metformin should be prescribed as well. Now that I've brought it up, let's quickly talk about lifestyle changes. There are a lot of myths out there about diabetes, diabetes diet, and diabetes self-management. It's important that patients are well-informed And the way to do that is by sending patients to diabetes education classes. We have the adult diabetes education class at Duke South and Briar Creek. We also have Duke Primary Care Diabetes Education, and there are classes at Duke Raleigh. For patients without insurance or who live downtown, the Durham Department of Public Health offers group classes in diabetes education and nutrition, and also individual appointments in nutrition. CARE, downtown Durham, runs a free diabetes support and education group every Wednesday at 1 p.m. So let's get back to metformin. So at diagnosis, start metformin. However, if the A1C is over 8, you may want to add a second agent in addition to metformin. And if the A1C is over 9%, you would want to consider three agents or even insulin. Why insulin? I like to prescribe insulin when patients have hyperglycemia because the patient may have type 1 diabetes. You also want to address pancreatic glucose toxicity. You can give insulin to, quote, cool the pancreas down. And that gives oral and non-insulin injectable agents a chance to work in the future. It also takes the fear out of possibly using insulin later. It emphasizes the seriousness of the disease. Also, insulin is our most flexible and efficient agent. It's the strongest agent we have. It's the only medication that will reduce A1C by more than 2% if needed. I'm here with Dr. Matt Crowley. He's the fellowship director for the endocrinology program here at Duke. Matt, tell us more about you and your research interests. My name is Matt Crowley. I am uh, an assistant professor of medicine here at Duke in endocrinology. Uh, I am the endocrinology fellowship director, as you mentioned, and I'm also an investigator over at the Durham VA Center for Health Services Research in primary care. And my main research interests over there relate to diabetes and telemedicine, using telemedicine and different uh, care strategies other than just plain old clinic-based care to try to improve outcomes. I want to talk to you about metformin because recently you were involved with Dr. Blake Cameron in a paper, correct? Yeah, so that paper was actually um, a write-up of a big project we did over at the uh, Center for Health Services Research. Basically, we were asked by the VA to do a, a large systematic review 
of the use of metformin for patients with contraindications and precautions, or I should say historical contraindications and precautions to its use. The VA does a lot of systematic review, and there are a few centers around the uh, country that have these evidence-based synthesis programs, and Durham happened to get this project, which was very exciting, and it did bring together people from endocrinology like me with people from nephrology like Blake Cameron and Clarissa Diamantides and John Stanford. And uh, the main question for that review was basically, you know, what are the benefits and harms of metformin use other than lactic acidosis, which has been explored thoroughly, for patients who have chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, and chronic liver disease with, uh, with impaired hepatic function. Now, was this just for the Durham VA? Yeah, no, so it was a, it was a systematic review. So it was a, the Durham VA team doing it, but the, the approach to the answering the question was to basically interrogate the literature on this topic of the world. We focused on uh, countries that kind of would have the most relevance to the VA population, but no, this was not a, a VA-specific population anyway. Okay. This was a broad literature search. Would you actually have access to data from the VA and metformin use? Yeah. Some of the projects uh, we ended up looking at were done on VA populations. The question I think you're asking is about you know, would it be possible to use VA data to do a, a big study? And yeah, it, it sure would, I think. And I, you know, some of that has been done. I suspect people will continue to use the VA electronic health record uh, for that purpose. Tell us the upshot of this paper because metformin is my favorite drug mm-hmm. and it's always just an awful time when you have to stop it. So the upshot is this. We were able to find a, a number of articles, all of which described observational studies. So there have been no randomized trials. The consensus of all of these articles showed that metformin use is associated with decreased all-cause mortality in each of these populations. Even though metformin's been withheld from these groups because of concerns about lactic acidosis and some other things, the fact is that it appears to be associated with lower mortality. So what about lactic acidosis? Do Mm -hmm. we know that having CKD increases the risk Yeah, so the reason we focused on those conditions, uh, in particular the three I mentioned, uh, chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, and uh, chronic liver disease, is that all three have the potential to raise your risk for lactic acidosis with metformin. So metformin and biguanide medications act by sort of inhibiting or decreasing gluconeogenesis in the liver, which is the process where the liver uh, takes lactate, metabolizes it to pyruvate, and then to glucose. And by inhibiting that process, you can imagine if you're, if you're kind of slowing the, the conversion of lactate back to glucose, there's potential for lactate to build up. Each of the conditions, chronic kidney disease, congestive heart failure, chronic liver disease, each of those has potential to further exacerbate the accumulation of lactate. With chronic kidney disease, you know, if, you're, if your kidneys aren't working well, there's a couple things that can happen. You won't clear lactate as well. The kidney actually does some gluconeogenesis as well, so that, that aspect of gluconeogenesis will be lost as well. And the other thing is metformin is a drug that's not metabolized by the liver. It's completely excreted, unchanged by the kidneys. So in addition to lactate accumulating, you get metformin accumulating with chronic kidney disease in theory. Uh, so that is, that's kind of the basis for why it's been restricted from that group. You know, in congestive heart failure, if you're getting poor oxygen delivery to your tissues as a result of heart failure, you can imagine you'll be more likely to do anaerobic respiration, uh, if you can think back to your medical school biochemistry classes, and that leads to more lactate accumulation as well. So these conditions have the potential to increase lactate production. Um, 
you know, the fact is that it's not even really clear, though, that things like chronic kidney disease increase metformin levels very much at all. And, and you know, the, the part of the reason we did this project to begin with, why this was considered an important question to ask by the VA, was that there's been this growing sense that even though metformin has this theoretical risk of increasing lactic acidosis, it, it doesn't really happen very much in practice. And, when, and on the rare occasions it does happen, it's almost invariably associated with things like sepsis, which can really increase your your risk of lactic acidosis independently. So metformin may very well have been an innocent bystander in a lot of those cases in the first place. And we actually did find some articles from other countries. There's an article from uh, Thailand, I believe it was, where they actually had a, a big cohort of patients who were on dialysis who were receiving metformin. Oh. And it didn't appear to be really markedly associated with lactic acidosis even in that group. Now that wasn't included in our study because it didn't meet our inclusion criteria, but uh, kind of interesting. Now I've never checked lactic acid levels, um, yeah. and so that's not an issue we don't have to worry about. Do we follow bicarb in patients who are on metformin who have CKD? Are there anything that we need to be aware of? No, I don't think so. The you know the main recommendations now FDA changed its guidance on metformin use in um, in patients with chronic kidney disease just recently last year in 2016, and the recommendation is that basically metformin is contraindicated with an EGFR glomerular filtration rate below 30 for patients who have uh, an EGFR between 30 and 45 who are already on metformin it's okay to continue it and, and continue to monitor serum creatinine. Um, it's, not, it's recommended to, to avoid starting metformin in patients with an EGFR from 30 to 45. Mm-hmm. And then for patients above 45, 45 to 60, um, metformin use is, is acceptable. You just need to continue to follow the, the serum creatinine. So don't need to follow lactate levels, don't need to follow bicarb. Basically just keep an eye on the creatinine and dosing should be uh, based on that. What about metformin and B12 deficiency? Well, that's kind of a whole different can of worms. Uh, we actually, you know, we, we did look at that as one of our outcomes in these populations, B12 deficiency. Didn't find any articles addressing that specifically in these groups. Um, but, you know, the broader literature about B12 deficiency and metformin, to my understanding, is that the way B12 absorption works in your gastric mucosa, you make intrinsic factor, um, and that binds with B12 and it's absorbed in the terminal ileum. Um, and there's a calcium-dependent mechanism by which it's a, that, that those B12 intrinsic factor complexes are absorbed, and metformin inhi- inhibits or affects that process. So actually, the way you, you deal with B12 deficiency in metformin is simply to supplement B12, and, and you can supplement calcium as well. Full literature. Can, you, can you supplement just with oral B12? Y- yeah, you can if you, mm-hmm. if you supplement with calcium as well, is, okay. is my understanding. If you supplement with... Um, you know, parenteral B12, mm-hmm. clearly that's going to bypass the whole right. issue, so that would be an effective way too. But Do we know how many patients across the United States this will affect now that we don't have to stop metformin when there's a decline in GFR? Yeah, so people have looked at that, and the, the two 2016 changes to the chronic kidney disease labeling alone were going to result in a million extra patients being eligible for metformin. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, overall, the, the whole situation with metformin and, and this evidence we found that it may be associated, that it's associated uh, with better mortality outcomes in these groups is really interesting. Uh, I, I'll point out that these are observational studies. You can't establish clear causation with an observational study the way you can with a randomized trial. 
um, observational studies are subject to certain biases in terms of baseline differences between the populations and things like that, metformin users and non-users. But, you know, it's, it's promising that to think that metformin could be linked to lower mortality, particularly because we have these new drugs, epigliflozin and the Emperag trial, and then mm-hmm. a couple of the GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, liraglutide and semaglutide, um, which all, you know, in these FDA-mandated cardiovascular outcomes trials appear to be associated with lower mortality. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because metformin is so, it's so effective, it's so well-tolerated, uh, it's weight-neutral, it's so cheap, mm-hmm. it's really important to not take your eye off the ball with metformin mm-hmm. uh, just because these other drugs have, um, have strong mortality data from these RCTs. What can you tell me about metformin and cancer? My understanding is that there have been a number of observational studies in a variety of cancers, uh, including colon and I believe breast, where metformin use has been linked to improved long-term outcomes. Now those are associations as well, no way to establish causation based on those studies. I think there's been smaller studies that have looked at metformin as an adjunct to standard cancer treatments mm-hmm. and things like pancreatic cancer for, uh, to, to see whether there's a role for it there, and to my knowledge those haven't really panned out. So that's a really interesting uh, observation that people have made. Um, very intriguing to think that metformin could be associated with improved outcomes. Before we leave, I wanted to also get your, your thoughts on the GLP-1s. In addition to the mortality and, and cardiovascular outcomes data, the biggest kind of source of promise for those medications is the weight effects, I think. You know, they, they, um, there's a higher dose version of liragotide that's marketed strictly for weight loss mm-hmm. um, in non-diabetic patients. So th- the idea that those are, are associated with so much weight loss and you know, their effects on satiety and, and uh, appetite are, are really a nice sort of adjunct benefit with, those, with that class of drugs. So you know, whereas metformin is typically weight neutral, doesn't necessarily cause weight loss in most groups, you know, those actually are associated with weight loss, which is pretty exciting. One of the other advantages of liraglutide in particular is it can be used down to uh, EGFR um, you know, stage 3 or 4 CKD, and um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be restricted from folks based on that. All right, what about SGLT2s? So those would be empiglyphosin or canagliphosin, dapagliphosin. Uh-huh. I might not even be pronouncing them right. Yeah, everyone pronounces them differently. I asked a few people like how what the right way to pronounce it is, and I've heard a lot of different answers on that. <laughs> the Empereg trial, um, epigliflozin, or, or however you want to pronounce it, was associated with improved mortality as well. It appears to have some other favorable uh, effects like weight loss. Primary side effects with those medications are, are increased rates of genitourinary fungal infections and then UTIs as well. But really promising drugs. I don't know how much you've used them clinically, but I've had really great results with both SGLT2 um, inhibitors and then um, GLP-1 receptor agonists as well. Yes, I've had excellent results with both of those classes of meds. And now that we can also use metformin and continue to use it, if the GFR is just slightly down, I think we have a lot to offer our patients. Yeah, I, I sure do too. And just for fun, we kind of looked at the, the cost associated uh, with preventing one death with using metformin based on the, you know, based on the data we found in our observational or our systematic review. And then based on the number needed to treat from the Empereg trial of empagliflozin and then the uh, leader trial of uh, liraglutide. And 
cost to prevent a death with those uh, different medications is, is really different, mm-hmm. which is important to keep in mind. Yes. Uh, which one do you think was the lowest? Metformin. Yeah, so the co- <laughs> based on our trial and some estimates we did from the data we found, the, the cost to prevent a death or save a life, whichever you want to look mm-hmm. at, it's mm-hmm. kind of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing, I guess, but the cost was about $5,000 based on our uh, calculations. Um, for empagliflozin, it was between six and $700,000, and then for liragotide, it was... Uh, over $2 million. Wow. So usually we're not talking about using empagliflozin or loragotide as monotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know, it typically would be add-on to metformin. But based on the data we found, which as limited as it is, is what exists, you know, metformin is just so much more cost-effective than those medications when you're talking about, um, you know, preventing deaths. Uh, that even though the, the data is not... Uh, at the same level for metformin now as it actually is for these other drugs, even though they're new, they actually have stronger randomized trial data, which metformin doesn't have for these cardiovascular outcomes and mortality. You still have to think of metformin as the top option, and that and ADA and, and other professional societies clearly do. Yes. Well, thanks for talking to us today. Of course. All right, I, I, because I want this to be a fun. A podcast in addition to informative I want you to tell me something about what you do to relax um, okay well I let's see so I uh, I've always been a musician and uh, I was in a band in medical school and I've continued to record music I'm actually working on over the past two years like a night here a night there I'll, I'll work on uh, recording songs and I, I'm putting together a album of 14 original songs um, that I've 10 done working on the rest of them still Um, again tough to make too much time for it but I uh, I kind of do it when I can so over the course of the past couple years I've I've finished 10 songs and I do guitar and do vocals and play a little banjo um, do some percussion it's uh yeah and then some like keyboard type stuff it's fun that's exciting all right well you'll have to come back when you're releasing your album okay. and give us an interview. <laughs> um, okay, what about, what's your exercise routine? So I, um, I'm a runner and, I, you know, I've been kind of a, I have to admit, I've been in a little bit of a down phase with running, but typically I do um, at least a couple half marathons every year. Uh, I, Again, I've been running too regularly lately, but I'll ramp it up and ramp it down from from time to time. I uh, I probably run at least two or three times a week and do other types of exercise on on uh, some of the other days. I would say I exercise probably four or five days a week. Um, but yeah, I love going out and running on trails. I live in a part of Durham where there's a lot of trails around, right in Duke Forest, and uh, yeah, there's nothing like going out and doing some trail Have running. Have you always been athletic? Uh, I played sports when I was younger uh, and continued to do some like intramural soccer, club soccer and things like that mm-hmm. through medical school. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm not terribly athletic. I think if you've run a half marathon, <laughs> you, you're in the club of athletics. Okay, well, fair <laughs> enough. What advice do you have to people who need to start exercising? You know, I, I personally, I think the biggest way to to work exercise is just to remove as many barriers as you can so I'll give you an example when I was I think it was probably when I was in medical school 
I would go to the gym. I hated going to the gym. Like in New Hampshire, it's um, it's in the winter. It's like dark at three thirty, mm-hmm. and uh, just like I'd be in medical school classes all day, and then be like, guys want to go home. So what I did is we saved up and bought a like an elliptical machine that we mm-hmm. kept in our house. Um, so in other words, I, I I was able to exercise more by removing the barrier of having to motivate to go to the gym. You know, think more thinking more broadly about how people, um, what kind of exercise people might be thinking of doing, just think about how to remove those barriers and, and make it easier. I like to, uh, you know, I still do, you know, the elliptical and things like that, and I like to watch shows and movies. Mm-hmm. It helps me get up in the morning mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. So the upshot, folks, is if you want to prescribe metformin in a patient, GFR should be over 40. If you have a patient who is already taking it, you do not need to stop metformin unless the GFR is under 30. In addition, metformin may have cardiac benefits and is also associated with a reduction in cancer. One last thing, please prescribe generic metformin or glucophage. There is an extended release metformin that is also generic, but there is no need to prescribe the brand name Glumetza or Fortimet, which can be $20,000 every three months. There is no additional benefit to these medications over plain generic metformin extended release. This has been a Duke Well podcast on metformin.